Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. Okay. Everybody good? Great. Okay. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 20 tonight. Okay. If you're a note taker, our sermon title is How Do God's Promises Work? So we're asking a question, and hopefully by the end of the evening, we're going to have that question answered. That's our goal. I want to introduce myself briefly. My name is Caleb. If you don't know me, I'm an intern here, just like Andrew said. And I am really thankful that I get to be here with you all tonight and examine God's word together. Um, Fellowship and and community is just such an important thing. And getting to do that in this context and getting to examine scripture together is just such such a blessing to me. And I pray that it's a blessing to you all as well. So before we do anything else, I'm going to read our text for us tonight and go over it real quickly, and then we'll get started. All right. So Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right, so the point of this passage tonight is to magnify the greatness of God by revealing how his Old Testament promises, which he kept, are a vital part of his plan to bring salvation to his people by redeeming us, and by one day bringing us home. So we're going to look at three truths tonight. We're going to pull these three truths out of the text, and they're going to follow a logical progression or a logical arc that is going to do two things. So the first thing it's going to do, it's going to build a case for a glorious and a sovereign God who keeps his promises. And then the second thing, it's going to reveal to us that the resolution to our sin problem lies in God keeping his promises. So, Things to look for tonight. Three truths, a problem, which the problem is not explicitly stated in our text, but in order to follow the logic that the truths are presenting, we have to acknowledge the problem that we have. So keep a lookout for the problem, and then finally look out for the resolution to our problem. So before we get into it, I want us to pray together. So let's do that now. Dear God, We love you. We just want to honor you as King of kings and Lord of lords. 
God, we want to praise you because you cannot lie. There is no deceit in you, God. You are only truth. Um, and God, I just I want to come tonight and confess my own inability to understand your word without the help of the Spirit. God, I pray that you um, send your Spirit to work in my heart and to work in the hearts of the people who are here tonight, God. Um, I pray that we would just be able to understand your word and, and know it and believe it. God, I thank you for giving your word to us, God. It's such a gift, and I pray that we would, uh, we would cherish it. Um, I thank you for keeping your promises, God. We ask for wisdom and for understanding tonight, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Truth number one. So if you're taking notes, you want to follow along. God is the biggest thing ever. All right. Truth number one, God is the biggest thing ever. We see this in verses 13 through 16. Now, I realize the simplicity of the statement. However, I don't want to gloss over this truth. We worship an amazing God, and he is absolutely worthy of all of our praise. So I want us to be just awestruck for a moment by the God that we say that we believe in. So our text shows us the magnitude of God. But before I unpack that, I want to highlight other areas throughout the Bible where God has revealed himself to be, in fact, the biggest thing ever. So the first way he does that is he shows to be creator. We see this in Genesis chapter 1. God created the heavens and the earth, and he created man in his own image. He has the power and the ability to make something out of nothing and to breathe life into his creation. Who else can do this? I want you to raise your hand if you've created something out of nothing and given life to it. None of us have, right? Any creative ability that we do have is merely a reflection of God's nature because we are created in his image. This is amazing. So when we think, when we speak, when we sing, and when we make beautiful things, it is because we are made in the image of our creator. So this should humble us tonight. Another attribute of God that we see in the Bible is that he's a judge. This is one that people try to ignore a lot. Um, the idea of God as a judge is really scary and it's really difficult for us to think about. So we see this quality of God repeated throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, we see him judging sin by destroying Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. And then we also see him flooding the earth in Genesis 6. Additionally, in Revelation 20, we're given a vision of God seated on his throne and pronouncing judgment on sinners. Now, before we panic or before we decide to reject this so-called judgmental God, let's follow the logic together. So the truth that we believe in is that God is absolutely perfect. And so therefore, he can't tolerate sin. He sets the standard for morality, and anything that violates his standard is wrong, and it must be made right. The debt of sin has to be paid. Now, although it might seem counterintuitive, the best and most loving thing that God can do is to judge sin. Think about it. So if he fails to do so, he then compromises his integrity as a perfect God. If there is no perfect God, if there is no standard for righteousness, then our situation is indeed hopeless. Because God sets the standard for righteousness, he is also able to provide the way for our sin debt to be paid. It is only because he judges sin that we have any hope of ever being made righteous again. All right, we're going to move right along. 
In Exodus chapter 3, God shows us again how big he is by revealing his character to us. The Lord made himself known in tremendous power to his servant Moses by simply stating his name. In Exodus, God appeared to Moses in the form of a burning bush and called him to the task of asking a tyrant Pharaoh to free God's people whom he had enslaved. During this interaction, Moses asks the Lord what he should tell the people if they ask him the name of the God that he serves. The Lord answers with the phrase, I am who I am. So this is God's name, which this translates to Hebrew, um, in Hebrew, excuse me, to Yahweh. So you may have heard this before. Now the implications of this statement from God are incredibly powerful. In saying I am who I am, the Lord shows himself to be self-existent. He does not depend on anyone else for his existence. He simply is who he is. The statement also shows God to be immutable in his character and being. What this means is that he is not in the process of changing into something other than what he has always been. He is who he is. It also shows him to be eternal in his existence. He has never been created, and he will never be unmade because he is who he is. All right. With this massive and this glorious God in mind, I want to cap off truth number one by taking us back to our text in Hebrews chapter 6 and showing us one more way that God is the biggest thing ever. Now look with me at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So we see here that God requires only himself and his own name as an assurance to keep his promises. Now, promises these days are very, really contractual. So actions such as, you know, signing a document legally binds us to keep our word. We also have other things like, uh, you know, credit scores that, that ensure that we have, in fact, kept our word in the past. In less modern times, people would often make promises simply on their own honor or on their own word. So you may be familiar with the idea of sealing a deal with a handshake. That's kind of what this is talking about here. What this meant is that one or both parties guaranteed on their honor that the agreed upon terms of the contract would be kept. Now, unfortunately, the problem with this method is that people break promises, right? All the time. We have all broken a promise at some point. Now, this is not the case with God. When he makes a promise, he guarantees it by invoking his own trustworthiness. He is so great and powerful that he does not need anyone to vouch for his word. Because there is no one greater than him, he can make promises and keep them perfectly. This is the God that we believe in and worship. He's incredible. He created us. He judges sin because he is so perfect that he cannot stand it. And then at the same time, he miraculously makes a way to forgive sin. He is totally self-sufficient. He is all-powerful, unchanging, and eternal. He makes promises, and he never breaks them. If you aren't absolutely convinced by now that God is, in fact, the biggest thing ever, then I really don't know how else to tell you. If these things are true about him, then he deserves all of our worship and praise. God shows off his power and his might by making promises that are unbreakable. 
Now, this brings us to our second truth. Before we get into it, I'm going to take a sip of water. All right. Truth number two, God's promises are about him and are designed to bring him glory. We'll go through it again. Truth number two, God's promises are about him and are designed to bring him glory. Look at verse 14. So we see God swearing by himself in verse 14, surely, uh, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Okay, this portion of the passage has quite a lot to unpack. So verses 14 and 15 are gonna take us back to the Old Testament, so we're gonna have to spend some time there in order to just understand the context of what's, going, uh, what's being said. Um, and then we're gonna have several questions that we need to ask and answer here in this text. So I wanna start with Abraham in verse 14. Who is he, and why does it matter that he patiently waited and obtained the promise of being blessed and multiplied? So in order to answer these questions, we have to go back to Genesis 22. So I'm going to quickly summarize the first part of that chapter. Um, it's just a really beautiful story. And I had to, when I was prepping, I actually had to be disciplined to not preach from Genesis 22 because it's amazing. But so all that to say, I'm just going to summarize it real quick. Um, and then I'll pick up reading where the promise from God to Abraham is stated. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles and follow along as I tell the story, it might be helpful just in case I, I leave anything out. So Abraham, he was called by God in Genesis 12 to be God's servant. He was counted as a man of faith and as a man of righteousness. We're going to actually see that later, later in uh, Hebrews chapter 11. And so what God promised to Abraham was that he would give him a son and a family and he would make him into a great nation. So at the time that God called Abraham, he had no children. Um, and then he eventually has a son, his name's Isaac. And so God kept his promise to Abraham, right? And so then that brings us to Genesis 22. So God chose to test Abraham by asking him to sacrifice his son, Isaac, whom God had given to him. So Abraham takes his servant men and he takes his son, Isaac, and he takes everything that he needs for a sacrifice except for the actual sacrifice itself. And he gets ready to go on this trip. He gets everything packed up, and they go, and they're on their way to this mountain that God commanded them to go to to have the sacrifice on. So they get there. Abraham leaves his servants down at the bottom of the mountain, and him and Isaac decide to go up together to the top. And they're carrying everything with them, wood, fire starter, knife, everything but the sacrifice. And Isaac makes a remark to his dad and says, where are we going to get the sacrifice from? And Abraham says, in faith, the Lord will provide the sacrifice. So they get to the top of the mountain. Abraham's building the altar, putting the wood on there, oil, everything else that you need. And then finally, he takes his son, Isaac, and lays him on the altar, lifts the knife, and is preparing to kill his son. 
And out of the sky, the angel of the Lord, it says in the text, calls out to him and says, Abraham, stop. Because you have not withheld your son, your only son, don't kill him. God, you know, I know God knows that you are, in fact, faithful and that you believe in him and that you trust him. And so Abraham doesn't. He doesn't kill his son, and he looks up, and he sees a ram that's caught in the thicket by its horns. And so he takes that ram, sacrifices it in the place of his son Isaac. And then we'll pick up here in verse 15, after that all happens. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time. Verse 16, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. So this is the language that we're seeing in Hebrews chapter 6, right? This is where the reference is coming from. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So this promise from God of blessing and multiplication is repeated throughout the Old Testament numerous times. So it's first found in Genesis 12, and it's known as the Abrahamic covenant. So essentially, like I said earlier, God chose Abraham as a servant and made a covenant with him and promised to make him into a great nation, to bless him, to make his name great, um, and uh, bless the families of the earth through him. Now, really quick, I want to just note that on the surface, this promise might look like it was designed to glorify Abraham. I mean, God promises him some nice things, right? Blessings and a great name. But in a minute, we're going to see that this promise is, in fact, designed to show off the glory of God's plan for salvation. So there's going to be more on that later, but I just I want you all to keep that in mind. So variations of the same promise are repeated four more times to Abraham, and then additionally to his son Isaac, which is the one who was almost killed, and then to Abraham's grandson, Jacob. So this covenant was the foundation on which God chose his people, the Israelites. And so that's what we're seeing here in Hebrews is the Abrahamic covenant. That's where that reference is coming from. So God, swearing by himself, made a promise to Abraham, right? Blessings and multiplication are coming his way. Abraham patiently waited and obtained the promise, says in verse 15, right? The Lord did keep his promise, and Abraham was blessed in his lifetime, and his family did become a great nation, right? The Israelites. So what we're continuing to see here is a picture of God's faithfulness portrayed in the life of Abraham. All right, verse, uh, verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Again, this is just reiterating the big God logic that we've seen so far. God can and he does keep his promises because he is able to swear by himself, right? Okay, verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Okay. So this is where the game changes, all right? I am really excited for this. So first, I'm going to untangle the language of these two verses a little bit. There's a few things to, to clarify and to define. 
And then I'm going to look at what these verses say about God's promises and why they ultimately point to him. All right. So the heirs of the promise. That is us. Galatians 3, verse 29, says, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Through the sacrifice and work of Jesus, we have become adopted children into God's family. We are God's sons and daughters by the grace of his marvelous plan. And because we are God's children, we are beneficiaries of his promises. So if you are in Christ, you have already reaped the benefits of God's promises, and you will continue to do so. So we are the heirs of the promise that are being referenced here in verse 17. Now, we see also in this verse that God is trying to communicate something more clearly to the heirs of the promise. He desires us to see the unchangeable character of his purpose. And the way that he shows us that is by guaranteeing it with an oath. Okay, this, this is fascinating. So what this means is that God makes promises so that he can show off his plan and his purpose to the people who are recipients of the promise. I'm going to say that again. What this means is that God makes promises so that he can show off his plan and his purpose to the people who are recipients of the promise. This should change everything that we ever thought we knew about God's promises. God is the one who is glorified through them. We are not the focal point of any promise that God makes in the Bible. Now, some of you came here tonight thinking that that was the case. Maybe for your entire life, you have thought that the promises of the Bible center around you. I want to take a moment to challenge that mindset because, it, it, frankly, it's wrong, and it hinders the growth of your biblical worldview. What we believe about the Bible and how we interpret it shapes the way that we live our lives. We need to get this right. Now, I'm not going to harp on this issue because it isn't what the text is teaching. However, the enemy uses lies like these all the time to blind us to the truth, and so it is certainly worth pointing out, okay? So I'm going to spend a moment going over some common promises in the Bible that are often twisted to the benefit of man rather than to the glory of God, like how they were designed to be. So these are going to be some verses that you've probably seen, you know, plastered on a coffee mug or engraved in a piece of wood or something. <laughs> Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This sounds great, right? I mean, people hear this and think, wow, God's going to give me money. I mean, he promises welfare, right? So watch what happens when you put this verse in its context. So this is the prophet Jeremiah writing to the people of Israel who are in exile in Babylon. Okay, Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, 
and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now, I'll be honest, it makes me a little upset that anyone would quote verse 11 on its own. I mean, you're leaving out the best part of the passage. Verses 12 through 14 show us a beautiful picture of God's desire for us to seek him and to love him with all our hearts. God wants us to find him. God wants to bring us out of the exile of our sin and death and bring us into new life with him, all for his glory. He promises to bring us back to him, to restore our relationship with him, and yet the thing that we take away from this passage is that he's going to give us money. So this is the danger of having a self-centered view of God's promises. If we aren't careful, we're going to be hyper-focused on the things that we want to receive and miss out on the abundant and everlasting joy of knowing God. There is no greater gift we could receive than the opportunity to seek out our creator and worship him. Don't miss it. Okay, Philippians 4.13 I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You've probably heard this before. This verse does not mean that you have the power to do anything. In fact, the context of this verse is going to show us just how powerless we really are. So Philippians 4, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have uh, received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Okay. Paul is writing this from prison. I just want to let that sink in for a second. When he says, I can do all things, what he means is that he can be content to suffer and languish in jail. This is not a self-serving mountaintop promise. This is Paul saying, God, I have no other choice but to utterly depend on you for my satisfaction, and I can do that through Christ. This is Paul running with endurance the race that is set before him. And he's not seeking to win it for himself, but he's looking to Christ, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, it says in Hebrews chapter 12. Because Christ strengthens us, we can be content with a life of difficulty and suffering all for the joy of one day being reunited with our Father in glory. That's the promise that we're we're claiming in Philippians 4. It has nothing to do with our strength, and it has everything to do with the sufficiency of God. Okay, let's keep moving. I think that we've pretty well covered verse 17. So, verse 18, we're back in Hebrews chapter 6. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie... We who have fled for refuge 
might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So, the two unchangeable things referenced here are God's oath and God's purpose and character. So again, this is just reaffirming the conclusions that we've drawn in the preceding verses, right? Because of God's unbreakable promise and God's immutable character, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So what is the hope set before us? This is where we're going to close out our second truth and come to our third and final truth. This is also where the resolution to our sin problem comes in. So let's recap. We've seen how big God is, right? By extension, we've also seen how sinful and broken we are in comparison, right? That's our problem. We've also clarified the purpose of God's character and his promise to bring himself glory. And we're about to see the miraculous restoration of our brokenness and the culmination of God's promises in the person of Jesus Christ. This, this is the hope that's set before us, all right? So this brings us to our third truth. God's promises point directly to Jesus, all right? Truth number three, God's promises point directly to Jesus. Okay, look with me at verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, this last section is gonna go quick. So these two verses are the crescendo of everything that we've heard tonight, and it is going to be amazing. But before we get the ball rolling, I kind of want to clarify this Melchizedek part. And by clarify it, I mean do a poor job at best of explaining it. Um, so we've already seen him once in Hebrews, if you remember. Um, he was mentioned earlier in chapter 5, which that was preached about a month ago. So essentially Melchizedek is a somewhat mysterious king and high priest figure in the Old Testament. Otherwise, I don't really know that much about him, <laughs> and that's because the Bible really doesn't say that much about him. He's, he's kind of mysterious. We don't know a lot. Now, fortunately for us, fortunately for me, the rest of chapter 7 is a discourse on the significance of Melchizedek. So if we all come back next week, we're going to hear a great sermon from someone way more qualified than me, uh, Dustin, and hopefully that'll answer all of our questions about Melchizedek. So for now, he's a high priest king figure that will be explained in further detail at a later date. So <laughs> I'm punting that one off to Dustin. It's important, and we're going to get to it next week. So come back next week. Okay, back to verse 19. There is some Old Testament language here that we need to clarify. So let's ask a couple questions. What is the inner place behind the curtain? Okay. In Exodus chapter 26, God gave specific instructions to his people to build a tabernacle for him to dwell in. So because at this point, the Israelites were a nomadic people group, and so they built uh, basically a holy tent, and they called it a tabernacle, as, as a substitute for a temple in which they could worship God and make sacrifices. So this tabernacle, uh, this tabernacle consisted of two chambers. So the first was the holy place, and then the second was the most holy place. It's also known as the Holy of Holies. So the most holy place, or the Holy of Holies, 
was where God's presence resided. The holy place and the most holy place were separated by a curtain. So anyone who entered the most holy place unbidden or unallowed by God was killed because no sinful human could rightfully stand in the presence of a perfect God. So therefore, access to God was sealed off by a curtain, and so God's dwelling place in the the most holy place was known as the inner place behind the curtain. So that's what we're seeing here in Hebrews chapter 6. That's where this language is coming from. So the next question to ask and to answer is, what is a high priest? Now, this concept was already established in chapter 5, and it will be further explained in chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. So we're going to get to that. I'm just going to briefly explain it now. Um, The high priest oversaw the offering of sacrifices to atone for the sin of God's people. So he was the only one who was ever allowed inside the most holy place behind the inner curtain. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies and made a sacrifice to God to pay for the sins of Israel. Before entering the Holy of Holies, the high priest had to undergo very rigorous purification to ensure that he wouldn't die once he entered the most holy place. So this is where the reference to the high priest here in Hebrews chapter 6 is coming from. Now, what do these last verses mean? So in the Old Testament... Under the old covenant, the high priest had to go in behind the curtain time and time again. Sacrifices had to be made continually in order for there to be forgiveness of sin. So essentially, the sin problem was never permanently resolved until Jesus came. Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, became a high priest forever and entered into the inner place behind the curtain on our behalf. This means that our sin problem can be resolved permanently. Jesus is the hope to which we hold fast, and he is the sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. When Jesus died on the cross and was then resurrected, he paid the price for sin once and for all. Now, I, want, I just want this to sit with us for a minute. You know, I would honestly love to expound more on this, but I really just can't paint a more beautiful picture than what is written here in God's word. Jesus, the perfect high priest, goes before God on our behalf and pays for our sin. And for this reason, we have a hope to which we can anchor our souls. All right. Now, as we get ready to close, I want to lay out the progression of logic clearly and plainly for us to understand. So remember I said at the beginning that the logic of this passage was going to show us a glorious God who keeps his promises and show us that the resolution to our sin problem lies in him keeping his promises, right? So we've seen very clearly how glorious and how sovereign God is. He created us. He righteously judges us. He reveals his unchangeable character to us, and he makes promises on his own authority. Because he is perfect, he can and does keep his promises perfectly. His promises are designed to bring him glory, right? He wants the the recipients of the promise to see how truly amazing he is. And then finally, this logic comes to a head in the most fitting way possible. So the problem that we face is a rift between sinful man and perfect God that prevents us from being in his presence. Our sin prevents us from doing what we were created to do, which is to know God and to worship him forever. The life and work of Jesus 
closes that rift. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross fulfilled every promise that God ever made. 2 Corinthians 10 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. God promised to bring us out of exile back to him through Jesus. God promises to enable us to have the strength to suffer in our life through the power of Jesus. When God promised Abraham that his offspring would be a blessing to all the nations, he was talking about the saving work of Jesus. And even better, we've already seen that promise come true in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, and after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God's promise came true. All the nations will receive the blessing of worshiping God in heaven, all because of Jesus. God's promises point directly to Christ and reveal the twofold plan of the glorification of himself and the blessing of his people. So what do we do with this? Now, as the band comes back up, I want to leave you all with some things to take home and to consider. So if you're a Christian here tonight, I want you to rest in the promises of God. Trust that they truly are for God's glory and for your good. Romans 8.28 says that God works all things for good. For who? For those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. Understand that God deeply loves you and wants to bless you. Know as well that God's promises don't revolve around you. We need to check our worldview and our understanding of God's promises and make sure it isn't a self-centered understanding. Allow the promises of God to ignite in you a desire to know him deeper and deeper and love him more and more. In doing so, we glorify God the most and we receive the most joy. Now, if you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to believe that the promises of God are true. I would be remiss if I were to stand up here all night and talk about the amazing joy of knowing God and then not invite you to have that same joy. It can be yours. This is not a blessing for good moral people to claim because they've earned it. The promise of joy in knowing God is for the broken person who has no hope of ever being good. That was me before I knew Christ. And this is you here tonight if you don't know him. Run from your sin and trust in the steadfast anchor that is Christ. You can have joy that is everlasting and victory over sin by trusting in the promises of God. Don't leave that on the table here tonight. Why would you wait any longer?